You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Joy for me uh, to be with you for this uh, weekend with a special emphasis on mission. Thank you very much indeed uh, for the invitation. I'm probably the world's worst missions speaker because I often forget to mention the mission that I work with when I come to a church for a weekend. So in case I do that again, can I just say there, are, there is some free literature which will fully explain the work of Operation Mobilization. We're a mission working in about 112 countries and on the high seas as well with our ships, seeking to plant the Church of Jesus Christ, particularly where that church does not yet exist or is weak and needing encouragement and help. People can come short-term with us, so there's a a leaflet on short-term missions, quite a dangerous leaflet, because I went with with OM short-term 40 years ago, so just be careful when you pick up that leaflet. And then if you're considering a gap year, we have gap year opportunities, three months, six months, nine months, and one to two year uh, opportunities uh, for students. And then long-term missions, we're very, very keen to see people who are going to come and give their lives to learn a language, to really embrace a culture, and to really uh, understand how to express the gospel of Jesus Christ to some of the unreached people groups of the world. And then our magazine called Global, which just uh, explains uh, various aspects of our work around the world, and a heartbeat is our daily prayer guide. There's also some books there and one DVD. The DVD is the DVD of the life of George Verwer, the founder of Operation Mobilization, a very unusual character, somebody who God has used in very unusual, exceptional ways, I think, around the world. He's a one-off, and uh, it's a very exciting story of discipleship, commitment, and uh, missions. There's also his book, or his latest book, More Drops, More Drops from a Dripping Tap, Mystery, Mercy, and Missiology. Missiology is um, the subtitle. One of George's favorite sayings is, where two or three are gathered together, there there is a mess. Missiology. Um, And then I've written a couple of books recently as well. One is on identity. Who am I? Uh, what is my, uh, the basis of my worth, my self-worth? It's called Building on the Rock. And then a book on discipleship. Discipleship matters. All books are there for five pounds each. If you paid more for them yesterday, I'm sorry. But five pounds each tonight. And if you have no money, uh, just take whatever you can usefully use, please. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to... Um, Genesis. I'm actually going to preach to you this evening from the Acts of the Apostles mainly, but we're going to read from Genesis chapter 12 and those three, the first three verses of that chapter. Missionary weekends, weekends with a special missions emphasis. It's an interesting thing. I remember, as I said yesterday, when I was a child in my brethren assembly, I used to really look forward to the missionary weekend because not all the services for a young guy in my assembly were particularly interesting. 
But the missionary weekend was kind of special. These guys would fly in from very exotic parts of the world, and they would show lantern slides. That was exciting, lantern slides. It always ended with a sunset, I remember, the, um, the, the selection of lantern slides. As I, as I grew up, I began to understand that when they taught uh, from the Bible, they normally taught from one of three or four passages. Matthew 28 was always common, always popular. Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? That often appeared. Matthew 9, the laborers are few. Uh, pray to the Lord of the harvest. So I begin to, began to think missions. Wow, that's something the church thinks about annually. You know, one weekend a year, the church really thinks about missions. And missions in the Bible, well, it, it's there, maybe three or four times. It, it's there, but it's not central to the message of the Bible. What, what, what I want to try and do tonight is show you how utterly wrong that thinking is and to show you that the, the, the great theme of the Bible really is God's mission to redeem a lost world, a lost creation, broken creation. And you're not really going to understand the flow of the Bible unless you understand that fact. Imagine you'd never read the Bible before. Just try and imagine it. You've never read the Bible before. You're reading it for the first time. Genesis 1, 2, 3, up to chapter 11. Just think about that. God has placed Adam and Eve in a totally sufficient creation, but they've blown it completely. They've sinned. They've rebelled against God. They've been put out of the garden, separated from God. You've got murder in the first human family. You come along to chapter 6, and God sees the wickedness of the earth. It's so great that he has to judge. And so the flood in the days of Noah. Through Noah, he sort of restarts the human race project. But by the time you get to chapter 11, it's all going wrong again. The pride of man's heart is being seen they're building the Tower of Babel, and God again has to come down and judge. He confuses their one language and so on. So imagine you were reading all of that for the first time, and you rather nervously turn the page to chapter 12. What is God going to do? Surely he's had enough of humanity. He's had enough of this human race project. Surely we're going to be reading of judgment and destruction. Well, let's turn the page. Chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And, incredible words, all peoples, all nations, all families on earth will be blessed through you. It's outrageous. It's outrageous grace. Rather than destruction, God promises global blessing that no ethnic group on the face of the earth, will miss out on. All peoples, all languages, all nations will be blessed. 
So the question is, how is God going to do that? Well, it's extraordinary. He takes this man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. They're in their old age. They've had no children. And he says, I'm going to give you a child. See how God uses the weak things of the earth? Abraham and Sarah, in this context, seemed so utterly weak. And God takes up Abraham and Sarah. He says, I'm going to give you a child. From your child will come a nation. And let's see how God was going to fulfill his promise to bless the world. Just turn a few pages to chapter 18 of Genesis and look at verse 18 where God repeats his promise to Abraham. And then in verse 19, he explains how it's going to be done. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord, this is how he's going to do it, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. How is, going to, how is he going to bring about for Abraham what he's promised him? He's going to give him a family, and this family is to be taught the ways of the Lord and to, their, to live out the ways of the Lord in their culture, in their context. They're going to be holy. They're going to be distinctive. And of course, as we said, eventually that family becomes a nation, the nation of Israel. So turn to chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, and we'll see how God moves from blessing a family to blessing a nation. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me. So God wants Israel to be something for him. He wants Israel to be a servant nation. What does he want Israel to be? Two things. He wants them to be a kingdom of priests, and he wants them to be a holy nation. What do priests do? Priests introduce people to God. And God is saying to Israel, I want you to be a priestly nation. I want you to be the nation that introduces the Gentile nations to me, the one true God. And how are you to do that? Well, you're to be a holy nation. You're to be distinctive. You're to be different amongst all the nations of the world. And you know how in the following chapters, God gives laws to his people, not just spiritual or religious laws, but laws which govern every aspect of life, moral laws, political laws, economic laws. He wants his people to be an utterly distinctive people in the midst of the nations of the world so that they will be a draw, so that they will be an attraction by their lifestyle they will draw the nations of the world to the one true God. Now, 
let me show you something which I get so excited about every time I read it. It's in the book of Zechariah. If you have any difficulty finding that, there's normally a shuffling of papers when I say Zechariah. Just find the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and go back one uh, book. You know sufficiently well that Israel, in the main, refused this calling. There was always a, a remnant who sought to obey God, but in the main, the nation of Israel refused this distinctive calling. You remember in the day of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, I think it is, they come to Samuel and they say, you're old and your children aren't walking after you. We need a king. All the other nations have got a king. We want a king. Why? We want to be like all the other nations. That was exactly what they said. God said, I want you to be different. I want you to be distinct. They said, no, we want to be like the, the other nations. They have a king. We want a king. You read the rest of the chapter when you get back home, and you'll see Samuel pleading with them. You don't need a king. You're not like the other nations. You are a theocracy. God is your king. You're distinct from all the other nations. But no, they say. They say it again at the end of the chapter. We want a king so that we'll be like all the other nations. And they became culturally assimilated with the nations around them. They even began, it's almost unbelievable, but they began to sacrifice their own children to some of the evil gods of the nations around them. So what did God do? He sent them into exile. And Zechariah is prophesying during one of these periods of exile. And he, he paints a lovely picture in chapter 8. Just have a look at it with me in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. What's uh, Zechariah saying? He's saying, if you come back to God and obey him, Get back to keep the, the covenant and God will bring you back to the land. And the old guys will be sitting on the park benches with their walking sticks and the children will be running between their legs. That's the picture he's painting there in Zechariah chapter 8. But look at the end of the chapter. And if this doesn't get the hairs on the back of your neck standing up, you're probably dead as you sit in your seat. Just look at this, verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says... Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let's go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. Wow, that was God's strategy. I'll have this nation living so distinctively amongst the nations of the world that Gentiles will grab the cloak of a passing Jew and say, take me 
to the city. Take me to Jerusalem because God is manifesting his glory there through the distinctive lives of his people. And I want to get in on the action. What a wonderful, wonderful strategy God had. You know, it's still his strategy. I think we were hearing it from David this morning, weren't we? Communities of people, missional communities, living distinctive lives right in the heart of Dundee and their worship of God and their response to his word and their joy in worship and their, their unity in the spirit is so powerful that it's an attraction, it's a draw to the peoples in the culture around. Well, Israel refused that calling. What's God going to do? Is this the moment he'll wash his hands? Don't you love Isaiah 42? Here is my servant, who I am upholding, my chosen one, in whom I delight. He, the Lord Jesus, will bring justice to the nations. What Israel refused to be, he, the true Israel, he will live that utterly distinctive life, not behind the walls of a monastery, but right in the heart of the community to such a degree that people said of him, he's a party-goer, he's a wine-bibber. He was there right in the middle of the people, living an utterly distinctive life so distinctive that it showed up the darkness and the evil of those around. So they took him to the cross and they nailed him there and they probably thought, well, that's the end of that. But three days later, he rose again, never to die again. And 40 days later, he gathered his disciples around him And so we finally got to Acts chapter 1. And he said to his disciples, Don't leave this city until you receive the Holy Spirit. But when you do receive the Holy Spirit, you are to leave the city. You're to start where you are. You're to start missioning, start evangelizing in Jerusalem. But don't stop in Jerusalem. Keep moving. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, keep going, keep going. Push the boundaries further until you've touched every nation. You've got to the ends of the earth. And if you want to understand the Acts of the Apostles, really it is, uh, it is expanding on Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 where, Paul sa- where, where, where Jesus says, Uh, Start in Jerusalem, but don't stop there. So, first seven chapters, you've got the gospel in Jerusalem. Eight to twelve, you've got the gospel uh, mainly in Samaria. And then from 13 on, you've got the message going global as Paul begins his great missionary journeys. Let's pick up the story at the end of chapter 7 of the Acts of the Apostles. There's really been no breakout from the city of Jerusalem. It seems as though the walls of the city contain the spread of the gospel. And persecution 
is rising against the church. And it's here that we meet the first Christian martyr, Stephen. The first of millions. Some have computed 70 million people who have been martyred over the years for the cause of Christ. 26,625,000 just in the last 10 years. More are being martyred for their faith than ever before at the present time. Well, Stephen is the first of those millions. And look at verse 55 of chapter 7. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man. Where did you hear that title of Jesus before. Well, it takes you back to another vision, a vision which was given to Daniel, and it's recorded in Daniel's prophecy. Let me just read what Daniel saw in his vision to you. I saw in the night vision, and beheld, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You get the picture? Here's the dying Stephen. And he looks to heaven and he gets a vision of the Son of Man to whom the nations have been promised. There he is, surrounded by the bloodthirsty killers, desperately defending Judaism, Jerusalem, the temple. But the vision which God gives Stephen is of the Son of Man, the universal Lord, the Lord of all nations. I think it's Bruce Milne who in his excellent commentary states this. At this point, Stephen effectively is directing the community of Jesus onto the theological freeway or the motorway that will lead the church out of Jerusalem, beyond Judaism and the diaspora, endlessly on to all the roadways of the world, both of the first century and of our own. How significant that the witness to this first Christian martyrdom would lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so onto the stage of world and mission history comes the man who more than any other under the hand of God will be used both through his theology and through his practice to develop Christianity into the global faith that it has become today. I wonder if anyone witnessing that martyrdom would ever have dreamed that in one sense, as Stephen died, he was passing on the baton to Saul, who would become Paul, the baton for this glorious growth of the Christian church. How unsearchable are his judgments, how indescribable, inscrutable, are his 
ways. Don't you think the devil often oversteps himself? I think if you look at world history and missions history, you'll find the devil often oversteps himself. You've probably heard of the amazing work going amongst the Dalits of India. You know the Dalits? Bottom rung of the caste system in India. They're the poorest of the poor. They're coming to Christ certainly by the hundreds of thousands. Probably a million, even two million Dalits have come to faith in the last 10, 15 years. And in one sense, in one sense, in human terms, you can trace a lot of this back to an Australian missionary, a man called Graham Staines, who was a missionary amongst lepers in India. And he was at a leprosy camp with his two boys. His wife stayed home. And he was sleeping in a Land Rover, and they put straw on top of the Land Rover to try and keep some of the heat out of the vehicle. And fanatical Hindus came at night, and they set the straw on fire, and when Graham woke and tried to get out of the vehicle, they beat him back into the vehicle, and he was martyred with his two boys. Indian television came to Gladys, his wife, and they gave her the opportunity to speak on national uh, Indian television. And she spoke of her grief and her sorrow at losing her husband and her boys, but then she offered forgiveness in the name of Jesus to those who had done this dastardly deed, if they would repent and trust Jesus, they would be forgiven. And I know personally that hundreds of Hindus thought there's nothing like that in Hinduism. And many people begin that they believe that from that beginning, this amazing work amongst the Dalits of India began. Sometimes Satan oversteps himself. And the martyrdom of Stephen set the believers on the move. They were scattered and we're told in chapter 8 and verse 4 they preached the word. That doesn't mean they stood be, behind pulpits like this. It just means that everywhere they went they, they gossiped. They spoke about the Lord Jesus. And then Philip. Oh, Philip. One of my heroes. He does a remarkable thing. Verse 5, he goes to a city in Samaria and he proclaims the Christ or the Messiah there. And you can almost imagine the emergency committee meetings back in Jerusalem. The disciples getting together. And, Do you know what Philip's done? Do you know where he's gone? He's gone to Samaria of all places. Those heretics who believe in a different Messiah and they don't worship in the temple, they worship on a mountain. What on earth is Philip up to? The woman at the well was quite clear, wasn't she? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But what a response. There were healings, there was exorcisms, and the response to the gospel was such that verse 14 of chapter 8 actually uses this phrase, Samaria had accepted the word of God. I don't know exactly what that means, but obviously there was a huge response to Philip's evangelism in Samaria. And then God comes to Philip and he says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave the place of Revival, possibly. I want you to leave the place where 
So many are coming to Christ. I want you to leave. And Philip says, where do you want me to go? And Jesus says, the desert. I want you to go to the desert. He doesn't even tell him why, actually. And off Philip goes in amazing obedience. You know how he meets this man from Ethiopia. Commentators tell me that he probably was on a journey of 12, maybe even 18 months from Ethiopia or Sudan, possibly. He'd come up to Jerusalem, and he'd received a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And on his chariot, as he goes across the desert, just as Philip's coming alongside him, he's reading a portion from Isaiah that any evangelist like myself would love to have somebody reading on the train when you're traveling with them. And he explains the meaning of this passage to the Ethiopian eunuch. And of course, he's converted. And remarkably, there in the middle of the desert, there's sufficient water for him to be baptized. Who was this Ethiopian? Was he a Jew by conversion or even by birth? Was he part of the diaspora? Was he a a Gentile proselyte? If he was, as Chris Wright uh, points out in his amazing book on mission, this is just another example of Luke consciously widening the net of the gospel as we move from Jerusalem Jews to Samaritan Jews to a proselyte Gentile, the Ethiopian, and then, as we'll see in a moment, to Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, and finally, to the real Gentile world of the Greeks and other nationalities. Luke is saying over and over and over again as he writes the Acts of the Apostles, this gospel is not to be kept to yourselves. You must push the envelope. You must go further. You must start in Jerusalem, but don't stop until you've reached the ends of the earth. And of course, then you turn to chapter 9, and it's the same message. A man who stood witnessing the martyrdom is now converted. And what's the Lord's word to him through Ananias? Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And that takes us to chapter 10. And I think we'd better stop there because uh, um, there's so much in chapter 10. And and I do tend to get a little bit excited about chapter 10, so so forgive me uh, if I get a bit excited. But here's Cornelius. He's an incredible guy, isn't he? He's a Gentile. He must have been a remarkable Gentile because the Jews, they really respected him. They really looked up to him. And that was very unusual. You know how the Jews felt normally about Gentiles. But he was a religious man. He was a God-fearer. And one day he's, he's seeking for God, no doubt. And an angel touches him on the knee and says, you need to send your men down to Joppa You need to find a man called Simon, and you need to have him brought back to your home. So he sends off his servants. Down in Joppa, I want you to think about God organizing world events here. Down in Joppa, there's Simon, Simon Peter, 
and he's feeling hungry. He goes to the flat roof of the house waiting for his meal. He's praying and he sees a vision. And in the vision, God is letting down his sheet and there's clean animals and unclean animals and this good Jew is very, very confused by this. How can you have clean and unclean animals together in the, in the same place? And he sees the vision not once, but three times. And God says to Peter, you must kill and eat. And Peter, who was, was pretty good at this, he said, never, Lord. Never, Lord. I, I, I can't eat unclean animals. And God just repeats the vision and Peter's just beginning to get the message when there's a knock on the door. It's those guys from Cornelius. And the Holy Spirit says to him, go with them. Go with them. Go into the house of that unclean man, Cornelius, and explain the gospel to him. And there in chapter 10, I can't remember the verse, it's late in the chapter, you get one of the great moments, I think, of... Uh, the growth of the church, when the Holy Spirit falls on Jew and Gentile alike in that home. And together they speak in tongues. A remarkable uh, example of what happened at Pentecost, happening again as these Gentiles come to faith. Well, <laughs> Peter has to explain himself, doesn't he? He has to go back to Jerusalem. And he has to explain himself. And you, you read about that in chapter 11, but I promise not to go to chapter 11. So you'll have to look at it yourself. But uh, this is actually what he says in chapter 11. He says, if I had not explained the gospel to Cornelius, if I had not led them to faith in Christ, I would have been opposing God. If I hadn't done it, I would have been opposing God. Listen to J.H. Bavnik. J.H. Bavnik, in his famous study, The Science of Mission, published in 1961, but I still think relevant today, wrote this. The church, he's talking about the church in the UK, loves to be occupied with itself, its own problems. I've been staying with friends in Perth this weekend, and we've been talking about this quite a bit, how the church spends so much time talking about its own problems, and often those problems are so small. They're incidental issues. They're not central even to the core of the gospel. There's a world dying without Christ, and we spend all our time and our energy talking often about really incidental issues and often falling out amongst ourselves about them. The church, said Babnik, loves to be occupied with itself and its own problems. People wish to remain quiet in the peaceful little church under the high Gothic arches, and there they brood about God and are preoccupied with the needs of their own souls. They don't want to be shocked by the bewildering idea that there are still hundreds of millions of people who have never heard the gospel. Babnik wrote that in 1960. I think it's as true today as it ever was. 
And it's as true today as it ever was, there are still hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who've never heard the gospel. I told you yesterday the church is growing faster at this time in history than at any other time, but world population is growing even faster. So although there are so many coming to Christ because of the growth of the world's population, every day there are more non-Christians on planet earth than there was the day before. With all the mission, all the wonderful growth of the church, there still, we're going backwards. There are still more and more and more and more people in this world who do not know Jesus Christ. 22 times in the Acts of the Apostles, You hear the direct voice of God. And in the majority of those those occasions, God's message to the church is go, go. Move beyond the fringe. Go to the furthest end with the good news of Jesus. Chapter 5, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of new life. Chapter 8, go south, Philip, to the desert. Chapter 9, to Ananias, this man Saul is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Go, tell him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go. Go. Push further. Keep going until all in Dundee and all the peoples of the earth have the opportunity to hear the good news. Let me just encourage you. It's uh, amazing when you're doing a job, isn't it, to know the job's going to be successful even when you're doing it. That's, (laughs) That's the wonder of the book of Revelation, isn't it? You all understand Revelation, don't you? I want to shake your hand as you leave if you fully understand Revelation. Um, I've got a page in my diary you can sign. Your name. It's called Hypocrite. No, no, no. Uh, I want you to think, when you think of Revelation, I want you to think of a big screen. And I want you to think of a Steven Spielberg movie. All right? Got that in your mind? When you're watching a Steven Spielberg movie, you don't concentrate, do you, on the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. You're not going to message if you, get, if you do that. You're not going to get the message of the film. You've got to look at the whole screen. And that's how you read the literature which uh, we find in the book of Revelation, a very special kind of literature, as you know. It's big-picture literature. What's the big picture of Revelation? Does ISIS win? Does secularism win? Who wins? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the winner. He's the champion. And we triumph with him. Evil does not reign. Jesus reigns. And who's with him? Who's with him? People from every tribe, Revelation 5, every tongue, and every nation. Exactly what God promised to Abraham. John, by revelation, has seen come to pass. You're privileged to be involved in that great divine plan. Let's pray.
Lord, please, would you show each one of us where we can push just a little further, if that's possible, Lord, in our commitment to your mission to redeem a broken creation and a lost humanity. Lord, if we can pray in some prayer group for people locally or globally, if we could give some more of what you've given to us so that the lost will have the opportunity to see and to hear the good news. Maybe, Lord, for one or two in this congregation, you're asking us for a a major change in our lives and to even have a career change so that we can devote time to be involved in some special way in your mission in the world. We know, Lord, we're all full-time involved in that mission. But maybe there's some special way you want some in this congregation to devote themselves to that mission. It's going to mean a major change of life and career. Lord, please, you always give grace to go with the calling. So would you give grace to any who you are calling to be involved in that way? Thank you, Lord, for your outrageous grace in not judging and destroying us, but in promising a global blessing. And we've been recipients of that, and we're extremely grateful. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish our service this evening uh, by singing the song Go Forth and Tell, which is uh, an instruction to us and an encouragement to us as well. And if you want to speak further about what you've heard this evening, speak to Peter as you leave and uh, find out more about how you can be involved in such world mission. So let's stand together and sing the song Go Forth and Tell, O Church of God, Awake. God's saving news to all the nations take. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.